The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today. And we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow if you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here is Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. My name is Dave Goldberg. And I'm your regular host for a new show called Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education and and engineering education. And you can find out more online at www.bigbeacon.org. And in every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. This is our first episode of Big Beacon Radio, and today we're blessed with a very special guest. Today we're joined by Rick Miller, president of Franklin W. Olin College of Engineering in Needham, Massachusetts, www.olin.edu online. And we want to hear about that school's extraordinary efforts to remake a very traditional and stodgy form of higher education, engineering education, into something better aligned with the 21st century. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. It's great to have you with us. And, and I believe you and I met in early 2008, and, and I think at that time Olin had just graduated its, its third graduating class. It's hard to believe, but in May 2015, Olin will celebrate its 10th class of students. And for me, it's been a great privilege to get to know and work with you and, and others at Olin during that time. Uh, before we get into uh, the topic of Olin, I, we'd like to le- learn a little bit more about you and, and your journey to Olin. So, Rick, you've been a college president and longtime engineering educator, but let's go back to the log cabin. What, what led you into engineering as a young man? Well, Dave, it's a privilege to work with you, too. I've been inspired by a lot of the things that you're doing at Big Beacon, and I think you know that. If we were to go back to the log cabin in my case, um, I was born and raised in central California on a farm. And, in fact, I'd never met an engineer or a person with a Ph.D. until I went to the university. Um, My dad told me one day when I was irrigating, and it's 100 and some degrees out in in the hot California sun, that if I didn't go to college, that that would be what I would do for the rest of my life. Um, that was a pretty good motivator. Um, so I wound up um, studying engineering because I thought engineers were people who make things. And on the farm, I knew that improvising and making things, taking initiative, was the way you survived. So I thought that's what I would learn. 
what what a beautiful story and and uh, and it, we talk a lot about motivation and not all not all motivators are are, are positive ones so they're sometimes they're they're motivated by by other than than aspiration and positive stuff so so you um, so you you headed off to college you went to UC Davis if I'm not not mistaken um, what was your what was your experience as a as an undergraduate uh, in engineering education? Well, I uh, took a lot of math and science courses primarily, and not until the senior year did I do a project where I actually was supposed to make something work. They gave me a wrench and said, see if you can build it. <clears throat> but I was very curious, and that's a long time to wait, four years. So I had done a couple of summer internships to get some inkling of what engineers actually do. They actually taught me lessons that stand out in my head much longer than the ones that I'd learned in the classroom. So, uh, for example, one of those lessons was really simple. I went to work at the Public Works Department at the County of Fresno um, because I was in civil engineering for quite a while. Um, and, and one of the problems I thought was really important was designing bridges. Um, I thought that was probably the epitome of being a terrific uh, design engineer was building a bridge. So I had come to my summer job uh, with my slide rule and some textbooks and strength of materials and concrete design, and they gave me a picture of a bridge that had washed out in the winter, and uh, so I was really excited. And then the guy came and he put this big uh, book on my desk, which he called the bridge book. And I thought, boy, this must have every formula in it that has to do with stress and strain and deflections. And I opened it up, and I was really disappointed. It was something like a giant Sears catalog in which you just pick out uh, the bridge that comes closest to looking like the bridge that just washed out. And all the plans were already done. Somebody else had done these plans. And all you did was you just specified what page number in this catalog and there was a couple formulas for how much concrete and steel it would need, and you gave it to the guys in the, in the office that negotiates with contractors. And I was really disappointed because I thought I was going to get to calculate something. I mean, after all, I took all this calculus and physics. So I asked them about that. Why don't I get to, you know, to at least calculate you know, how big the steel bar should be? And he said, well, look, if we let you do that, you might get it wrong. And if you get it wrong, somebody will get hurt. So, you know, we couldn't possibly let an engineer working at this level to solve problems. And I think, man, there's kind of a mismatch between what I'm learning in school and what these engineers actually do. Yeah, that's really an interesting story. And, and so many engineers have that experience of being, you know, so you get taught the, the math. You, you go take two years of calculus and ordinary differential equations, and then you do the physics, and you do the chemistry. You, you do the whole math science death march, and then you get into the engineering science classes, and you're, you're calculating up a storm, and you, and you either go out into your first internship like that, or you, you go out into the world and find out that that's actually not really much of what engineering is, is all about after all. That's right. In fact, there's another example which really transformed my life and has a lot to do with Olin. And this didn't happen until years later. I had graduated from Caltech, and I was with a Ph.D., and I was teaching at the University of California at Santa Barbara. And in order to uh, supplement my income and to learn more about uh, practical engineering, I took a consulting job. And this is with an aerospace design firm. It's called Astro Research Corporation at the time. Now I think it's part of Northrop Grumman. But they make deployable spacecraft. 
And I worked with this guy, uh, John Hedgepeth was his name, who was the president of the company, uh, in trying to design very large deployable space structures. And this one project in particular was called the Heliogyro. It's a helicopter that flies in the solar wind to chase Halley's Comet. This was back in the 1980s. And, in fact, this helicopter has uh, 12 blades, if I remember correctly, and each blade was seven miles long. Um, boy, was it a weird-looking thing. And just coming up with the principles on which you design this, because there is no air out there. It's the solar wind is just photons. And I was really struggling with trying to find anything in my educational career at Caltech or at MIT or at the University of California, which prepared me for this. And the people that I worked with there were really good at this. And I realized that the process of design, as they practiced it, was really the heart of the most interesting part of engineering. And this was almost completely absent from my education. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I'm, I'm still imagining those those miles long blades and, and, and things like that. And so um, actually in doing, and so, so you've had these experiences of mismatch and then you found the heart of, of engineering in, in design somewhere in doing preparation for the show. I read that you were also in a, a, a rock band and you were on the stage with Janis Joplin at one, at one <laughs> point in your life. Uh, to what, to what extent did that affect how you think about, about engineering and what you do now at Olin? Well, that's probably true, although I have to make sure you realize that I don't think Janis Joplin ever knew I was on the stage. I was just a backup um, band. But the the uh, whole business of music, uh, which to me was something that you did because it just came naturally and it's part of uh, self-expression, it's like oxygen, not part of my professional career, but it taught me an enormous amount. We eventually came to look at engineering as a form of uh, performing art. And in fact, the pedagogies that you learn in art school, uh, even music school, have a lot to do with understanding how best to learn engineering. So I didn't realize this until years later when I had a daughter who uh, studied the violin and the piano using the Suzuki method. I'm not sure how many people know about that method, but it's really a powerful pedagogy, and it requires the parents to be in the room with the teachers at the same time. Um, and they, it, it's a remarkable thing. They'll start kids as young as three or four years old, and within three or four years they're playing things like the Bach Double, which is this stunning um, violin duet, uh, classical music. And you know, so how do they do that? And learning the pedagogies of how you teach people to play music uh, was very uh, transformational for me in terms of trying to think about how you teach people to engineer things in a very stunning way. Yeah, that's that's really interesting in the sense of of engineering being a performance art or something that you do as in body and emotion as well as in your head is is uh, is a theme that you, know, you and I have visited on a number of occasions. Um, so, and thinking about that, you you had you, so you went from you went from college, you went into grad school, you became a professor. Um, and you were a professor for quite a long time, and you, you took a turn uh, somewhere along the way, uh, I think at USC, to become an associate dean, and then you became a dean at, at, at Iowa. What, 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 was, what were your motivations in, in your leadership turn? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the most uh, interesting thing, looking back on it, 
was I was more interested in undergraduate education than you were supposed to be. I think that became clear to me after a while. I wound up um, serving on the School of Engineering uh, Undergraduate Education Committee. I got selected. This is at USC. Then I was asked by the president of the university to serve on his commission on undergraduate education. Um, and I had written a long letter to our dean at this point. This is when I was just a professor in, in uh, aerospace and civil engineering. I wrote a letter to the dean about how um, unfortunate it was that we put too much emphasis on graduate education, and there were so many things in the undergraduate program that weren't going well. And I delivered the letter as chair of the committee and already had approved my sabbatical leave to go off to another place for a year. And he called me up on the phone, and he said, okay, Rick, I agree with you, which I didn't know he even read these things, but he does. And he says, I'd like for you to do something about it. Uh, so I want to make you the associate dean for academic affairs. Mm. He says, you're going to have to deal with the promotion and tenure process, too. But he says, I want you to fix it. Now, I had never dreamed of going into administration. This was not on my bucket list. Um, but I found this a moral challenge that I couldn't turn down. Uh, and the more I got into this, I discovered that um, probably it would make a bigger difference at the end of my career looking backwards if I had done something to help my colleagues, my peers, and, and on the faculty to think differently about undergraduates than it would if I just wrote a letter every once in a while and taught my class well. And so I wound up going down that pathway. Um, I also found out, by the way, there's no such thing as a part-time associate dean. <laughs> sure. Uh, there's some things that you learn, but only in hindsight. Yeah, and so you did that, and that we, we're we've and we've got about another minute or so before we go to go to break, and and um, in 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 telling the story of of Olin, I, I remember that um, that that you were a re, you were a reluctant recruit to become president. You were dean uh, at uh, the University of Iowa, and and um, you were asked to think about the Olin job, but you were reluctant. What was what was your reluctance, and, and what changed your mind? Well, um, I had just turned down an opportunity to move to a, a different university as the president on the West Coast, and it was a traumatic thing for my family. So a lot of it was, you know, not another one of these uncertainties just now. The other part of it was the the sort of bizarre nature of Olin College to begin with. I mean, the, the uh, Olin Foundation's, you know, sticking their thumb in your eye and saying, everybody's doing it wrong. It's going to have to be reinvented from the ground up. You yeah. shouldn't have tenure. You shouldn't have departments. No students should pay tuition, and everything should have an expiration date. And it was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, that, that's the, yeah. the more I thought of it, the more it became clear that maybe, um, maybe this was a project that's worthy of the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, so let's hold that thought and we'll come back and let's, after the break, we'll talk about the, the founding of Olin. Um, this is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Rick Miller, president of Olin College. And when we come back, we'll, we'll talk about the beginnings of Olin and how a hiccup in the construction schedule turned out to be very important to Olin becoming Olin. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Change is coming to higher education like a freight train. 
but transforming higher education is challenging, full of risks and opportunities for administrators and faculty members alike. If you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom, if you are starting a brand new school or academic program, or if you'd like to boost your own career, let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. Dave is a leading speaker, author, strategist, trainer, and coach with experience in helping bring successful change to both academic institutions and careers around the globe. To learn more, contact Dave Goldberg today at deg at 3joy.com or go to the 3 Joy Associates website at www.3joy.com today. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. To find out more about our programs, be sure to visit our website at BigBeacon.org. That's BigBeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with our guest, Rick Miller, president of Olin College. So, Rick, before the break, we were talking about uh, some of the personal reasons why you were a little reluctant to consider uh, Olin and then the, the the big challenge of doing something this big with uh, the rest of the rest of your career getting getting you to t- take the job. So uh, you, you started to allude to some of the motivation and thinking behind Olin. Can you can you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Yeah, there were so many things that needed to be fixed. I mean, the, the small percentage of students, I think less than 5% of the bachelor's degrees in America each year go to students who study any kind of engineering at any university. That's the smallest percentage of any of the developed economies around the world. It's about 12% in Europe and about 30% in Asia. And it's a declining market share. And yet that small percentage of students are the ones who will touch a very large fraction of the gross domestic product in the U.S. Um, And a lot of the students, about half of them, who enroll in engineering in the fall will never graduate in engineering. And many of those students who leave have higher grades than the ones who stayed particularly those who are women, just glaring with, uh, with issues. So motivations behind this were really huge. And then this whole personal experience that design is really what engineering is about, and it's not what engineering education is about, and yet it's the most creative thing. I mean, I basically came at this with two sort of obvious um, factors about the way kids learn which seem to be missing. One of them is every kid that I know of loves a mystery story, and every kid that I know of loves to make things. And when it's taught correctly, science is a mystery story. It's not memorizing facts. And engineering is about making things. It's not about turning in problem sets on green grilled paper. Um, So why do we do that? Do we have to do that? And this Olin College opportunity gave us a chance to explore alternatives. That was the big idea. So and and so you you came in. You were president. You were first employee in presidents. It's it's uh, it's 1999. What were some of the the big rocks, the big decisions that that you made very early in in the founding of Olin and the establishment of the school? Probably the most important decision on, in retrospect in that first year was to realize that the 
dynamic between teacher and student is the heart of what education is about. It's more important than what the syllabus looks like for the course that you're talking about, and it's more important than uh, any sort of uh, accreditation criteria list of details. It's really the culture that you create. So when I was recruited as president, I had to express a vision to the Olin Foundation directors about why I thought this opportunity would make a difference. So I had a rather, you know, we called it the white paper, a rather complete description of what you might do if you started with a blank sheet. Now, the the big decision, though, was not to use it. So I took that white paper and put it in a drawer, and I told people about it, but I never showed it to anyone. And the reason was I didn't want to take that uh, curriculum outline and put it on a bulletin board and then advertise around the country and say, if you're interested in teaching exactly this stuff in exactly this way, then you should come and work for me. Because the kinds of faculty members who would do that were not the ones that we needed. So instead, the big idea was to recruit relatively young people who were really bright, really passionate about changing education, but possibly not had, had never in their career uh, developed a curriculum for anything, and trust them to invent the curriculum from first observation and direct experience. And, of course, if everything went wrong, we could always pull the paper out of the drawer. But I think that sends a message about the importance of trusting the young people that you're working with and helping them to invent it so that what they teach is really authentic. You know, it's interesting. You know, we, we now use that T word, the, the trust word, a lot in talking about students and, and the unleashing of students by trusting them. But it, it, it's interesting to hear that, that word in connection uh, with the founding of Olin and, and trusting really a group of fairly untested uh, n- newbie faculty um, to do that. Actually, um, that was a pretty gutsy gutsy thing to do. Well, it, um, I had a few sleepless nights, but you know, it wasn't long before it became clear it was the right thing to do. How did that, how did that, how did that show up? How did you, what kinds of signals did you get to, that told you that it was the right thing to do? The breadth and the depth of the questions that they brought to the table. Um, the very first time we met as a group, uh, one of the hands went up after I just sort of teed up the conversation that, you know, we have this responsibility to rethink what it means to be an engineer in the 21st century and to rethink what it means to be educated. A hand goes up. Excuse me, I'm a chemist. Can you tell me what an engineer is? Because after all, uh, don't we need to know what an engineer is if we're going Mm -hmm. to create a curriculum? And don't we need to know what every engineer needs to know? You know, in all my years of engineering education in a school of engineering, that question had never come up. It doesn't come up, and it's you know it's interesting that it doesn't come come up in those big, those big essentially philosophical questions. Those you know, what a philosopher would call ontological, but they begin with what is, what is engineering. You've called a couple of the big ones out. What is engineering? What is education? And and it's interesting how most professions don't ask that about themselves, and and how education doesn't ask that about itself. Mm-hmm. It was really that experience where the the 10 or so founding faculty around the table, half of them not being engineers, that I really understood the value of diversity. Um, in the diversity being diversity of mindset and diversity of background, 
they asked questions which were so fundamental and forced us back to first principles. It took a little longer to get through the conversation, but we came out at a very different place because of that point of view. Beautiful, nice, and so, and and so this goes on. And actually, one of my favorite stories about the founding of Olin is so it so you 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 go from that point with the initial faculty. You've got the buildings going up, and and you find out that the buildings are and and you recruit your first class of students, and you find out um, it's two thousand and one, and you find out that the buildings aren't going to be ready in time to open in that fall. And so I, I, I love this story, but you know, share with our listeners what happened next. Well, it was very inconvenient timing. We had, as you know, creating something big like a school, you have many different parts that have to be created simultaneously, a little bit like cooking all the different dishes for a buffet dinner. You know when the guests are going to arrive, so you start each one of them in parallel. Well, in this particular case, the buildings take the longest amount of time to come up. And right in the middle, so about uh, nine months or so before the students were supposed to arrive, and we had already recruited a group of students. We had gone out and mail. Um, we find out that the campus construction project is not going to be completed. It's going to be delayed by a year. And we began to think about what that means. And one of the problems is that you can't just write to these high schools that they came from and said, you remember that letter I sent you about this new school? You know, never mind, it's not going to be ready for another year. If we are that unreliable, we were afraid that they would never listen to us again. They were not going to send their best kids to us. So we decided to make lemonade. And what we did was we created on the fly something we call the Olin Partner Year, which meant that we invited 15 boys and 15 girls to come and live with us in construction trailers on a parking lot for a year while the campus was under construction. And, of course, we had another uh, campus construction trailer a little ways away where the faculty spent the year, and they were not students. They were not taking courses, so we called them partners. And we told them, when people ask you where you're going to college, tell them you're building your own. And then we made them on a first-name basis with the rest of us. And what we did then was transformational. We realized at that point we could do experiments in education that no other university could do. You couldn't do this at Harvard or Stanford because the students at those places were counting on succeeding in every course they took so that they could graduate. But we could set up experiments at this startup institution which was not teaching courses yet, we could deliberately set up those experiments to fail. And then we could watch them fail, and we could learn from what the students tell us about that experience. And so the Olin Partner Year really taught us most of what we needed to know about how to teach. And and, uh, such a beautiful story, and and some of the best-tasting lemonade that's ever been made educationally, in in my view. And and so... um, so what was the, uh, you know, so you basically credit that for teaching you the, the, things, the things you know, but um, um, in what ways did that, the, did that change the nature of what Olin has become? Probably everything, but let me give you just a couple of stories. So one of the first things that we did in thinking about starting the school was ask ourselves what we remembered from our undergraduate education. It's stunning, really, how little we could remember in detail, except all of us who were engineers could remember our senior project. It was amazing what the retention of knowledge was from that. 
we want, so we asked the obvious question, so why did we wait to the senior year? Well, obviously that must be because you need all this prerequisite calculus and physics. Really? So where do you find the, the experiment that shows that? We couldn't find it, so we decided to repeat it. So we put a bunch of these kids to, uh, on a project which they didn't know that was unlikely to be successful. So we told them, we want you to design, build, and demonstrate a pulse oximeter, and to do this in five weeks. And they said, excuse me, a what? So we spelled the word, and we told them this is that medical instrument in the hospital that they clip on your finger, measures the pulse rate and the oxygen content in your blood, and it doesn't stick a hole in you. You know, it just measures um, the color through the skin. So we said, fine. Um, they said, where do you find out about it? I said, why don't you go to the Internet and look on the patent literature? And there'll be a schematic diagram, and they'll tell you something about how it works. And if you have questions, you know, come and ask. We figured that they would get really, really stuck and depressed uh, after five weeks. Uh, we would end it, sort of a mercy killing, and then we would do the postmortem to see where did they get stuck in the semiconductor physics. I mean, after all, they didn't know what a transistor was and so forth. Turns out, though, they built one sort of against all odds, and it was working. Now, don't get me wrong, you, this would not be something that looks like what you'd find for sale in a, in a market. Uh, the soldering was pretty sloppy. It was a, kind of a miracle that it worked. And they had a box full of fried transistors that all blew up because they put them in backwards. But it worked. And we brought in a hospital version to calibrate it right next to them. They're both doing the same thing. Now, we learned two things from this which were profound. Number one, engineering is not a body of knowledge. Yes. Let me repeat that. Engineering is not a body of knowledge. Now, it involves knowledge. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But engineering is a process. In this, in, in fact, this is now, in retrospect, obvious. The aircraft industry was invented by a couple of bicycle mechanics in Ohio, not a yeah. couple of physicists in a research university. So we learned through that that we should be emphasizing the process of engineering, not the just-in-case science. The yeah. other thing that we learned is that the, the experience that they had was transformational. The fact that they were able to succeed at a challenge that they could barely pronounce at the beginning gave them a kind of can-do attitude and a sense of confidence about what they were doing that none of us had as undergraduates. Yes. Now, this is uh, the story again. So we're coming back to, and actually it was sort of, you, it's actually sort of, it was it was faux trust. You 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 trusted that they would fail and that they would need you, and and they didn't. And, exactly. And, and 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 it's interesting how many stories in educational reform are exactly that, where we completely underestimate who these young people are who are uh, coming into our classrooms. So um, uh, we're going to hold that thought, and and we're going to come back and and. Uh, Consider some of the things. So, some of the things that that people find interesting about Olin when they come to visit from um, from all over the the world. So, this is uh, Big Beacon Radio with special guest Rick Miller, president of Olin College. And and when we come back from from break, we're going to consider some of these the secret sauce of what makes Olin Olin. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network 
Change is coming to higher education like a freight train, but transforming higher education is challenging, full of risks and opportunities for administrators and faculty members alike. If you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom, if you are starting a brand new school or academic program, or if you'd like to boost your own career, let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. Dave is a leading speaker, author, strategist, trainer, and coach with experience in helping bring successful change to both academic institutions and careers around the globe. To learn more, contact Dave Goldberg today at deg at 3joy.com or go to the Three Joy Associates website at www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. To find out more about our programs, be sure to visit our website at bigbeacon.org. That's bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with our guest, Rick Miller, president of Olin College. So, Rick, we were just, we were just talking about that lovely story of, of the students building the, the thing that you didn't think they could build and, 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 and the learning from that. And so Olin's progressed. There are lots of great stories about Olin, but... But now people are coming to Olin as a model for how to transform not only engineering education, but, but higher education more, more generally. So, um, when, when, when people come and, and, and talk to you, it's almost like Olin is a Rorschach test and you see, you see uh, education through our, their eyes. What, what is it that they see when they, they come to campus? I, without exception, when people come to visit us, they tell us that the most um, authentic and the most transformative experience they had was the tour that we give them with students. So when they talk directly to our students, they can see a completely different mindset. And I think that's the, the biggest uh, takeaway. So what do I mean by that? I mean, the students have uh, obvious uh, intrinsic motivation to learn. Uh, they feel empowered. They feel they, are, they have a purpose in life and they know what they're going to do and they're really driven. I think this is huge myself. I think this is why it extends beyond engineering. You may know that broadly speaking, uh, we have a problem in this country that kids often graduate from college. They put a check in that box. They have no uh, idea yet what they want to do with their life. They go back home. They live there for most of their 20s. They postpone marriage. They don't have a purpose. And sure. I think one of the things that we see with engineering in particular, when it's done this way, it empowers them to make a positive difference in the world, and they really understand how to do it. So they can't wait to get started. Yeah, and, and actually, uh, so my experience coming to Olin the first time in 2008 was the same, same one I I wrote about it later and called it the Olin effect. And it, it wasn't that the kids were smart. I expected them to be smart. It wasn't that, that they were articulate. I expected them to be articulate. But it was this, this, um, these emotional qualities that, that were different about them, the sense of there was a sense of confidence. There was a sense and, and there was a sense that they were already even in their These were freshmen. I remember talking to that. They were already um, they were already engineers in the heart, even if they weren't engineers completely in in the head filled with calculus yet. But they were in the heart. 
they had a sense of, of, of what engineering was and how it could make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, it's interesting. And so if you, um, if, you know, if you could, if you could bottle one thing um, and send it out to other schools of, of engineering or other schools of, of higher education. Is, is that it? What, what would it, what would it be that you would bottle and, 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 and give to other schools? I guess one of the most important takeaways from the experiment so far is that, and I believe this is true universally across cultures, across disciplines. I think we routinely underestimate what students are capable of doing. Yes. We overstructure their day. And as a result, we take out all of the joy, all of the fun, all of the the discovery and the sense of purpose that could fuel education. I mean, look at the fact that kids are dying to get on Facebook when they get out of school. They they have bottled up creativity in the sense of wanting to become the most important person in somebody else's life. But we've channeled that out of their of their educational experience, and so they have to uh, scramble to try and put it back in. Imagine what it could be if we had reversed that, and this business of self-expression became central to what education is. Yes. Yeah, and I love that. You know, going, that actually ties back to uh, your, your being a rock musician and being on stage and the stories about mu- musicianship, um, this, 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 this notion of expression that that education and what you do with it is actually a, a it, it's not just vocation. Yes, it is vocation. Yes, it is a job, but it's expressing who you are in a very fundamental way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so, okay. So I think one of the, one of the things we have to get on the table here is I've heard this a, about a gazillion times and it, it's, it's, I have to confess it's a little annoying when I hear it because I actually don't think it's true, but I'll hear something like this. I know you've heard it too. So you'll be talking to some faculty at a cocktail party or something, and and they'll say something like, well, you know, if I had half a billion dollars, a dedicated teaching faculty, no tenure, and new buildings, and Rick Miller is my president, I could build an Olin too. And so I guess what's um, I, 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 when I hear that, I, I think that it underestimates the specialness of, of what Olin has become and, and how, in some sense, fragile it was. But what's your, when you hear, when you hear that uh, people say that or make that objection, what, what's your reaction to it? Well, exactly the same as yours. It's, un, it's In a way, it's unfortunate. It's a bit of a distraction to think that this is something that you can buy and that it has a big price tag. In fact, most of the time, uh, when I meet people from around the world and they ask, what can I do in my circumstances to improve education? I'll tell them it doesn't cost you a thing. Let me uh, suggest two things, which I think will transform your undergraduate experience. Number one, ask your faculty members to sit through the courses that they have assigned their other students to take. Have you ever done that? I mean, you have these assumptions about what students are, are going to see and that sitting in a lecture and taking notes and taking tests will produce this kind of integrative understanding. If you actually sit through it, you'll be amazed at how different it is than, than you thought. That's number one. It's one of those Yogi Berra things. It's amazing what you can see by looking. Number two, structure your program so that you have uh, more often than not two faculty members in the room at the same time. The mere fact, preferably two faculty members from different academic backgrounds, 
And what you'll find is that there'll be tension in the room. There's a sense of concern among the faculty about what I'm going to say when, because you can't prepare that in advance. You'll also find that the students are on the edge of their chair because there'll be a slightly different perspective that each brings to the same problem. That makes it more interesting and engaging. And the faculty members, like it or not, will learn from each other. But can that be done? Yes, it can be done. For example, I'll bet you have a course in almost any engineering school where students have to take a humanities course like history and they have to take a science course like material science. Consider teaching them together in what we'd call a double-wide course where you have both instructors in the room at the same time and the kids get credit for two courses and then intertwining it in a way that the students can't tell you what they're learning. I don't know whether this is science or whether this is history or what, but I just know that you have to learn this in context. Yeah. Did you and know there's some, by the way, and there's some great you, examples like that at Olin, for example, you know, John Stolk and Rob Martello collaborating on on what amounts to a history class, uh, combining study of Paul Revere and the metallurgy of Paul Revere as as uh, uh, as as coppersmith and metal metal worker. So there's some great examples like that at Olin and elsewhere. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so yeah, you know, Olin's. Uh, uh, a special place, and pe- sometimes when people want to work with Olin, they don't realize how small it is. Uh, it's uh, you now something. What are you pushing? Three hundred fifty, four hundred students now, thirty, forty faculty. It's of that order of magnitude. And so when you look at, and I, I taught at a, a big public school, the University of Illinois, with four hundred faculty and and seven thousand undergraduate students. So. In, in business, we would call Olin a pilot plant or an incubator. Um, but what can a, you know, and, and some of the skepticism and the, and the, the half billion dollar objection comes from people at big state schools. What, what can a big state school or a large research uh, university learn and take away from Olin? Well, obviously, that's the purpose of Olin. Olin was actually designed, they spent the half billion dollars not to create just another small engineering school, but in order to become essentially a privately funded STEM education laboratory that could give away its ideas to larger institutions that could scale them up. And, of course, the work, Dave, that you and I and others did between Illinois and uh, Olin is a good example of that. Our method of making this work is to create a summer program where the faculty from other institutions come together with a vision for some kind of change in their institution. And then they spend a week or two weeks uh, working with uh, faculty here more as mentors than as lecturers to try out those ideas, to, to feel what it feels like to be a student in the classroom that they have been teaching in and what they could feel like if the classroom were restructured with, around different questions. So it's really a mindset change, and that doesn't cost very much money. But you need to take um, a look institutionally, and I suppose you could actually explain this much better than me, Dave, about how to spread these ideas once you come back to the large institution. Well, and I think, and I think, Rick, you said it. You said it before. It's it. It doesn't cost a thing, and that was sort of the in in working with Olin. That was the surprise of some of the work that that we did with. with iFoundry was that we didn't have we didn't have a budget. You know, we we had a hundred thousand uh, dollars to do a little pilot program, and yet, what we noticed that what 
the the good stuff was the same good stuff at Olin. It was the confidence. It was the sense of purpose. It was all the things that you said before. It was the Olin effect, and that that didn't cost a dime. That it was, and but it, but it, it was, it was simple, but it wasn't easy because it required faculty to trust students in a way that we're not used to doing. You know, so it, does this stuff? Okay, we've been talking about engineering. Does does this stuff work? outside of engineering? How does it land differently? We're, we're convinced more and more by people that we're running into around the world that it has an equal application to the broader picture of higher education in general. Uh, for example, we're working with a group in India called Ahmedabad University in the Gujarat province in which the entire multi-dimensional research university is adapting these same principles across all of their undergraduate education. They're relatively early in the process, but they've been really amazingly successful at getting results uh, right off the start. I'm convinced that if we understood broadly that young people are capable of doing much more than we think, that a lot of the structuring that we provide for them is unnecessary and is for our benefit rather than theirs, and that when you put the joy of discovery and trust them to do things in their own way at the center of what we're doing, it's really transformative. And that doesn't matter whether it's engineering or philosophy or history yeah. or business. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. No, and, and uh, uh, you see it in, in other places, too. It's just the, 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 the important variables that we're talking about in many ways. You know, some of the variables are things like, well, making and, and things like that. But a lot of them have almost nothing to do with engineering, and it, it seems to translate very well. So um, we're going to take uh, one more break. And uh, this is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Rick Miller, president of Olin. And when we come back, we're going to check in with Rick and see what's next for Olin College and, in his view, what's next for higher education. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Change is coming to higher education like a freight train, but transforming higher education is challenging, full of risks and opportunities for administrators and faculty members alike. If you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom, if you are starting a brand new school or academic program, or if you'd like to boost your own career, let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. Dave is a leading speaker, author, strategist, trainer, and coach with experience in helping bring successful change to both academic institutions and careers around the globe. To learn more, contact Dave Goldberg today at deg at 3joy.com or go to the 3 Joy Associates website at www.3joy.com today. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. To find out more about our programs, be sure to visit our website at BigBeacon.org. That's BigBeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Rick Miller, president of Olin College. And, and Rick, um, we're, we're sort of talking about the ways in which this, the secret sauce can be, uh, 
carried over to other engineering schools and, and other disciplines in, in higher education. Let's talk a little bit about, we've been talking, we've also been talking about the history. We've sort of gone back into the history books and went back to your log cabin. So now let's look a little bit into the crystal ball. So you were hired in 1999, that's 16 years ago, and uh, and and in a couple of years, your entering freshmen will not have uh, been born when Olin was started. So Olin's not really new anymore. Um, so, um, and yet you value innovation. So I'm curious to the extent as chief executive, does does the, the getting a little long in the tooth uh, con- concern you at all? And in what ways? I'm glad you raised that. Um, Olin's purpose, of course, is to become this kind of, privately funded national laboratory for STEM education. And um, in the first decade, we basically built the laboratory and convinced ourselves that there, there is real substance to the change that can be made. Um, now we're looking into decade two. And decade two for us is a completely new pioneering experience again. Can this, these changes and these ideas and this experience on this little campus, can this be used to provoke a culture change broadly throughout higher ed? Um, there's, been, there's a lot of previous attempts to create change in higher education that have not been successful, so there's a lot of uncertainty here. But that doesn't seem old to us. That doesn't seem to be something that isn't new or fresh. This is our real learning opportunity. In fact, uh, we're beginning to make some progress on that through a parallel effort with the National Academy of Engineering called the Grand Challenge Scholars Program, which uh, tries to create incentives and rewards for engineering schools across the U.S., to uh, identify students, to motivate them to broaden their education beyond the uh, math and science background in order to prepare them to deal with the complex grand challenges, that this has really grown. Uh, It was invented in 2009. About a year ago, we had only 20 or 25 schools who had actually created one of these programs. Today, actually on March 24th at the White House, we had 122 engineering deans present President Obama with a signed letter of commitment that they're planning to recognize and graduate um, collectively 20,000 engineering graduates over the next 10 years with this broadened type of education. So at some point, that's about a third of all the engineering schools in the U.S., and that grew in just a little over uh, three or four years. Um, We need to try to create a movement, and we need to work together uh, across engineering to encourage and reward this sort of um, change. And I'm convinced that it could really be transformational. Okay, and so I'm hearing that as uh, as as an as an institutional innovation to get people to focus on some of the right stuff that um, that might lead them into making these kinds of changes. And then before we were talking about some of the ways that you you sort of share the culture. You're not sharing, you're not lecturing, but you share the culture and things like your summer institutes and, and, uh, the, the collaboratory. But I'm, this, you know, there's, there's, there's this issue under the heart. You know, I've seen this at other schools and, and when other schools, um, have an innovation in a, in a pilot and things are working, there's the, uh, and since we're talking about culture, the, the existing culture is still the dominant culture and still uh, extends its reach wherever it goes, and we, hire, we tend to hire from that culture. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you prevent that, 
the blob of of higher education culture from undoing some of the good stuff at Enolan or or in 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 these other places that that make these good pilot advances. How do you how do you get the culture to really take root and 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 change? Well, I have to only speculate on this because no one I think yet has the textbook written. Yeah. And I think it's somewhat different in each institution. Cultures, yeah. cultures differ from one institution to the next. But we're beginning to see some patterns. One of the things that I believe is really important is that the role of students within the institution needs to be more important than it is now. That's number one. Number two, the administrators, I don't think, can make change happen. You, you can't buy edict because of academic freedom, write a letter that says tomorrow we're going to value these other things more than the ones we have in the past. However, you can sure stop change. Um, You can do that deliberately, or you can even do it without knowing that you're stopping change. So so getting the leadership of the university really committed to a five-year, let's say, effort to make culture change is a prerequisite to getting where you need to go. Um, That's really important. And then, of course, I think you need to have some pioneers, some people who are willing to commit to a cause who are bigger than they are. Um, and, you, and I really am convinced about this. If you have a large university, the wrong idea is to spread out um, a little bit of innovation over 40,000 people. Uh, so, man, if you wanted to make a difference in people, the way people think about money, uh, I wouldn't give $1 to every person in America. Uh, I would find a subset who have uh, already developed an appetite for change and a willingness to make a difference and invest most of the money in them first. And the success that they have will be a beacon to others that success is possible, number one. And it will also create a comprehensive change in culture in a small corner of the university, which then can spread to other corners. I've seen this at USC when I was a faculty member there, how the transition happened across that whole university. Yes. But Dave, I don't have the textbook. I'm just speculating. No, and you're, and you're, and I think it's a difficult, it's a difficult problem. And, and, and a lot of pilots will start off with excitement and, and, and and then backslide and and Olin has has not succumbed to that and and um, I was just wondering uh, you know what we can learn from that or how we can prevent it if if we think about the larger landscape of higher ed you know there's a lot happening um, uh, uh, innovation expert uh, at Harvard Clay Christensen says universities are being disrupted that essentially universities now are like buggy whips were uh, at at the beginning of the twentieth uh, uh, century and. And but they're very old institutions. The uh, first university is 1088, so about 10 centuries of being somewhat similar to what we are are now. What um, what are your thoughts about the disruption of university and what the land? What's the landscape of higher education going to look like in a few years? Okay, well, my vision of this is that we're on a continuum, moving say from left to right. And you can see some clearly now, some of the changes in what's causing them. The traditional uh, university that you described is what I'd call one that's aimed at a knowledge economy in which our basic assumption is that knowing more stuff makes everything better. So the more stuff you know, the more valuable you'll be, the better jobs you'll get. Uh, the, the sort of idea of doing that efficiently is that you're putting content into kids' heads. You're doing this with an expert who has that content content, and he's standing in front of a group organized in rows who quietly take notes and then answer tests, maybe something like a Jeopardy game at the end. But that's all been disrupted now, as Clay has pointed out. 
for example, Google and the Internet has come along and sort of fundamentally reduced the intrinsic value of just knowing stuff. Now everybody knows stuff. All you, can, all you need to do is Google it. Yeah. So that's changed us from a knowledge economy to what I would call a maker economy. In the maker economy, which this transition is going on right now, what you'll find is that it's not just about putting stuff into kids' heads, but there's also stuff coming out yeah. uh, as they imitate what others do and then compare that with what they do in order to improve it in this sort of uh, continuous improvement cycle. That's how they build skills. And so the, the way you do that now is not with an expert that stands in front of the room because Google's replaced that. Now the role of the teacher is the sage on the, is the guide on the side. They're sort of the coach. Yes. And the yeah. optimal organization is to have students around small tables working on some kind of a maker project. Beautiful. And the outcome is not about what you know. It's about what you can do with what you know. It's about Great. mastery. Great. Where, this, where this is going. I, yeah, and... We've we've got about thirty seconds left, so we'll let you finish that up. And also, uh, as you finish up, let people know how they can find out more about Olin. Terrific! This is going to what I'd call an innovation economy, where now it's what comes out of kids' heads that matter. It's original ideas and insights. If you want to find out more about Olin College, I would recommend that you go to our website, um, which is www.olin. That's O-L-I-N. dot E-D-U. My email address is richard.miller at olin.edu. I would be glad to connect you with our folks who run the Summer Institute. Beautiful. Thanks Thanks so much, Rick, and, and appreciate your sharing experiences back to the log cabin through the founding of Olin and, and to the current day. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest, Rick Miller, president of Olin College, And join us next month when New York Times bestselling author Dan Pink joins Big Beacon Radio to explore the future of higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join David Goldberg soon for another edition. New episodes are heard every month on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.